it's clear to him that these are men from the darkness mm-hmm. and so is he and he knows them <laughs> Hello listeners, and thank you for returning once again to the Monster Island Resort, your online radio show that goes bump in the night. My name is Miguel Rodriguez, and I like to discuss fear in history, art, literature, film, and beyond. Today we are going to delve deep into the secret world of intelligence espionage. I have with me today the author of a new book called I Am Pilgrim, which is a 21st century espionage thriller that really takes a different look at the genre of the spy thriller. The author's name is Terry Hayes, a former investigative journalist turned screenwriter. He wrote Mad Max 2, as well as Mad Max 3, Beyond Thunderdome, the movie Dead Calm, From Hell, and a bunch of others. And this is his first time as an author of a novel. So I get to talk to him all about writing the book, about the book itself, and uh, some of the different themes that he has going on, as well as the characters themselves. It's a really excellent read. I suggest you go out and get the book, I Am Pilgrim. But this interview is not spoiler-ridden, so you can still stay tuned and listen to our conversation, which I hope will make you want to read the book even more. So without any further ado, let me introduce to you author Terry Hayes. Well, thank you very much for all your support and everything you've been going on about. Were you, did you read my book review, Brian? No, oh, of course I did. Okay. Of course I all did. Right. I read all the book reviews. Don't all believe right. people who say they don't. So we'll get, get to brass tacks. All right. So, you've worked as a writer for film, of course. Films like Mad Max equals Dead Calm from Hell. Tell me about planning to write a novel. This is your first novel. How long have you been working on I Am Pilgrim? And how long have you wanted to be a novelist? Has this always been kind of in the in the works? Right. Uh, well, I'd always wanted to be a novelist. Mm-hmm. Ever since I was a kid. Because just one of those things that captured my, my imagination. And I loved reading. And I, being a kid, you know, you think oh, I could do this. So I'd always planned to be a novelist. But then, you know, I'd go through high school and stuff and it's very hard to, um, you know, find a job. You know, there's not many job descriptions that say novelist needed, you know. (laughs) So I became a journalist. um, And I had some uh, abilities at that. uh, And when I was 21, the newspaper group I worked for in Australia sent me to, to be a foreign correspondent in New York. So... I was very young, and I, but I was also very fortunate for two reasons, one of which was they gave me a company credit card, a company American Express card. <laughs> so you're 21, you're living in New York, and you've got a company credit card. So, obviously, I think this is the greatest job in the world. The other thing was that I arrived just as Watergate was starting to really unfold. Then we had the Arab oil embargo, we had Paddy Hurst being kidnapped and then joining the Symbionese Liberation Army. We had so many great stories to cover. And that was wonderful. So, journalism was terrific. So I put aside the idea of being a novelist and pursued a career as a journalist. Well, I'm working as a producer of the country's top-rating radio program, and a mutual friend of mine introduced me to a guy who directed a film. His name was George Miller, 
the first screenplay I ever wrote was with George and it was, became Road Warrior, was Road Warrior. So I then went into business with George, so I then became a screenwriter and I ended up going to Hollywood. So yet again, the novelist idea gets pushed aside. But, you know, I use this expression in the book and I stole it from Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Steven Spielberg says, the world doesn't change in front of your eyes, it changes behind your back. And that is true of the movie business. When I first went into the movie business, you you had a good chance of getting a, a movie that you'd written up and made. Mm -hmm. Now it's extremely difficult to be the solo author of anything and they don't make many movies. But the one type of movie they do make is something that's been validated in another medium. Comic books, mm -hmm. TV shows, earlier movies, remakes, sequels. Familiar property. Yeah. Yeah. And that... And I figured, uh, because I watched what happened with Harry Potter, <laughs> and I was convinced that if Harry Potter had been written as a movie script, it would never have been made. Mm -hmm. But when it was written as a book and became a big hit, it was easy to make it as a movie. So I said, I'm in the wrong end of this business. Instead of working for the studios, I've got to create stories and have them validated in another medium. Ah. Mm -hmm. oh, after all these years, I was back to square one, being a novelist. And so I Am Pilgrim was written to be a great novel and hopefully to be a movie mm -hmm. in which I would write the screenplay, but I own the rights to it. It's a different way of approaching storytelling. That's all. So, yeah, I'd always wanted to be a novelist. I just took a long time to get there. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny. It seems like it would be a, a thin line to cross. Is, you know, I want to create a property in this medium in order for it to become a property in this other medium, but you still want to have the original story be something worthwhile. That being said, uh, your novel reads a lot like, some, like you're watching a thriller, mm -hmm. and you could tell that you have a lot of experience with the, the script writing medium. So uh, when approaching the novel, was it hard to get out of that and, and go into novel, novel, I guess, form? No, no. It takes a while to unlearn some of the things you've done in movies. But what you're trying to do in a movie is to tell the story in the most efficient way possible. With a novel, you're telling a much more epic story. But you've still got to tell it in the most efficient way possible. Otherwise, what well, is now a 600-page book would be a 2,000-page book. So it's the same thing. It's the same storytelling thing. But you have more latitude in a novel. But latitude doesn't mean that you can be indulgent mm -hmm. or slack or uncaring. You've got to bring to it the very same disciplines. Look, writing screenplays people would think you're crazy for saying this and maybe it is but this is my my experience and attitude writing screenplays is like poetry mm -hmm. maximum amount of meaning minimum number of words Absolutely. really arresting ideas they might be conveyed on film but we all know that when you read a great piece of poetry or listen to great lyrics to a song which without doubt is the poetry of my generation and all generations that followed, I mean, Bob Dylan, to me, is the greatest poet 
of the 20th century. And there's a whole lot of people, many of whom working in rap, who are great poets. And they have to make you jolt forward when you hear the words. You do that with images and film. You want to do something that makes people jolt forward and say, my God, that's something. You try to do that on the written page in a novel. You try to give people that punch yeah. so that they do pay attention and, and they're with you. They're going through it. So it's very similar, but it has you know quite substantial differences. At its core level, it's very similar. But how you achieve it is different. But you're either a storyteller or you're not. Mm-hmm. You know, Ginger Baker, the, the great drama, you know, for Cream and, you know, uh, with Eric Clapton and probably the greatest drummer of his generation, he's got a really great saying. He says, it either swings or it doesn't swing. He said, there's no halfway. You can't halfway swing. And that's a bit like what you're trying to do in a novel. It either works or it doesn't work. Same thing on a film. Mm-hmm. and you sit in an editing room and you live with every moment that doesn't work. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, you try your hardest. <laughs> yeah. So there's some process talk. How about let's get to the novel. Mm-hmm. We'll go back to that Spielberg quote that you, you put in your book about the world changing mm-hmm. uh, behind your back. The world has certainly changed a lot since the heyday of espionage fiction, of course, Ian Fleming and, and so forth, the Cold War mm-hmm. espionage. Uh, I Am Pilgrim deals a lot with the evolving role of intelligence over the decades, particularly post 9-11. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about your research, and I guess you talked about that a little bit, but your research into geopolitical history mm-hmm. and how that informed I Am Pilgrim as well as its fictional intelligence agencies and the main character and how they view the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, having been a foreign correspondent and you know, reported on some very, very big stories, I've always had that interest in in the macro thing of how the the world works. Growing up in Australia, which is a strange place to grow up, you know, same land area more or less as as America, as continental United States. When I went there as a child, I was a migrant. When I went there as a child, we had 7 million people in an area the size of America. Well, now we've got 22 million, I think. and yeah, eight eight million of them are in two cities, so it's a pretty it's a pretty empty place here in San Diego, which to me sounds look more and more like a suburb of Los Angeles yes. because no. there's you know you've got a lot of people they've got to go somewhere. That what that does to you growing up in Australia is you have two choices: you either look very inward or you look very outward. Mm-hmm. Well, because I was a journalist, I looked very outward. Now, I've always had that attitude. I've always been very interested in American foreign policy, American intelligence policy. I mean, our two countries have fought countless wars together, some very you know, necessary wars, some unfortunately unnecessary. And I grew up through the Vietnam War, and we went through the same anguish thing that America did. So I've always had an interest in the geopolitics of it. I was here in America on 9-11. Uh, my, wife and, my wife's American. We were living in Florida, and I came in from the office, and you know, like everybody else, I, I couldn't believe what was unfolding. So that had a big effect on me. We were starting to have children, and you wonder what sort of world they're coming into. So it all came together, and I'd had a great interest in spy thrillers and espionage thrillers. I'd read them for years. I loved them. And it occurred to me 
that nobody was writing a an espionage thriller for the new world right. in a meaningful way. There was a lot of demonization of people from the Arab world without any real ability or, or interest in trying to understand why so many people might wish all of us in the Western world so much ill will. But I had an idea about what that might be because you know, I'd reported a lot on American intelligence involvement in Australian politics coming out of the Vietnam War and that. So I had an idea that this would be something that was worthy of, of at least researching. And so that's one thing journalism teaches you, to be sceptical and to read widely and then start asking questions. So I sort of thought that I might be able to do an espionage thriller for a brave new world mm. and do it in a way that would bring some understanding of what was happening with you know, genetic engineering, what was happening on the horizon with science, what was really happening in the Arab world, and all of the threats and dangers that posed to us. So it was a coincidence of a lot of very different things in my life. None of them planned, but you know what it's like. You, you wake up in the morning and you think, that's a good idea. And generally by lunchtime you think, no, that's not such a good idea. But by lunchtime I was still thinking it was a good idea. So, you know, I start to think... Well, I filter it out a little bit. Yeah, and I thought, well, maybe I should start to think about writing this. Right. Well, I mean, I have to say that the first thing that caught me about the book, and, and I, start, I decided to start out my review of the novel in this way, is as reading it, it takes place in a post-9-11 world, but still manages to feel like an espionage thriller of the Cold War, which is very strange to me. I mean, that, that caught me right off the bat, and also how real the world felt. I start noticing as I Am Pilgrim begins like a noir film, yes, and uh, or a Rain, Raymond Chandler novel, yeah. uh, a crime scene described in the first person is the opening scene. So um, that crime scene figures into the story in a rather unexpected way. Mm-hmm. When, you, when a person starts the story, and then when, when you see how that unfolds, it changes course. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when you started writing the novel, did you know that that would not be a primary crime? And I'm trying not to give too much away here. Or what were you thinking would be the focus of the story when you sat down and began the first chapter? Oh, I, I knew it was going to be an espionage thriller. Mm-hmm. But I also knew that... I had to have a really, really strong subplot. Mm. Something that was outside of the espionage world. And I wanted to show just how good the man we come to know as Pilgrim is Mm. at looking at a scene in front of you and seeing things that other people might not see. I also had to introduce a person called Ben Bradley who's a New York homicide detective who becomes very important in the espionage plot so it had a lot of demands on it but I did think of the idea of having him involved in an espionage subplot and I thought you know what that's going to get pretty tedious he was a man that had retired from, from, from the espionage world and it became I like epic stories you know, if I had my choice, I would be Charles Dickens or Alexander Dumas, who who did, you know, Count of Monte Cristo. Mm-hmm. I'd be Larry McMurtry in Lonesome Dove. Right. I'd be James Clavell in Shogun. Big, sweeping stories. And I had to show all of the elements of the guy we come 
to know as Pilgrim, of his life. Mm -hmm. And he had a life outside of espionage, or at least he was reaching for it. And of course, I, I didn't initially have this this line from the Eagles Hotel California you can check out any time you like but you can never leave <laughs> and that is true of the espionage world if there is one thing that's true it is that it's like uh, the La Cosa Nostra y yes <laughs> you can never leave yeah. and that I couldn't use the line in it because I would have had to have paid the Eagles a huge <laughs> amount of money and I, I thought whatever profit I make from this book is going to go to Don Henley and the guys. I love them, but I don't love them that much. Um, so I, I wanted to show that he had left that world and was reaching for normal. He gets called into a crime scene by his sort of guy he knows who he's not even sure he's friends with because when you've been a lonely spy out in the cold for so many years, it's hard to form friendships. He gets called into this. My job then was to make that investigation interesting, but also tie it back into the espionage plot. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, nobody's ever written a crime thriller combined with an espionage, an espionage thriller. Now, there may be a good reason people have never done that. Yeah. But... I thought, well, I'll give it a try. Hey, well, it, it, it works. It oh, works. thank you. It <laughs> works because you can enjoy it on different levels. Mm -hmm. And the way they are tied together is quite satisfying. One of the quotes at the novel's start is from Looking Glass War. Yes. There is no terror so consistent, so elusive to describe as that which haunts a spy in a strange country. Can you describe the role that fear plays in I Am Pilgrim, since that is such, it seems like an important idea, and how it fits the story thematically? Yeah, I mean, everybody in the secret world, unless you're working at Langley for the CIA as an analyst, but then you're fearful of making a mistake. Mm -hmm. You're fearful of overlooking something. But everybody who's working in COVID intelligence, it is very frightening. Mm -hmm. Now, there's uh, Jean Le Carre, who that quote comes from, was writing about the Cold War, and of course, it is pretty was pretty terrifying to be an agent behind the Iron Curtain and that and that was the milieu in which he was writing but it's also very fearful when you're you're dealing with in this case Islamic fundamentalism and mm -hmm. Arab terrorists but it's also fearful for the guy who is the villain of the piece he knows they're going to kill him <laughs> this will be an extrajudicial killing with no question asked Look, you know, we only had to see what SEAL Team 6 did when they found Osama bin Laden. They weren't making sure that they had the right guy, yeah. you know, and there was no handcuffs there, you know. And I think that my villain, known as the Saracen, he knows what he's... He's a highly intelligent man. He knows what he's fooling around with. So he's fearful. The President of the United States and the Director of National Intelligence, from the moment that a piece of fabric is returned in a specially sealed box from Afghanistan they are terrified yeah. they think not just America they think the whole western world is going over the falls together so everybody is frightened and the person that is most frightened is Pilgrim not because he ends up in a an appalling situation you know, personally for him he's had a premonition of death 
on all of the many missions that he's been involved in. He has never had that. And he's a psychologist, uh, you know, he, he is a doctor of psychology, and he knows what that vision means. He knows it's a vision of death. Mm-hmm. He knows that, the, that he's looked behind the curtain of the universe for a second, and he's seen something, and he feels he's going to die. I won't say whether he does or not, but there is a sequel to the book, so we can assume from that. But he he does have this very strong feeling. So he's terrified or very frightened of going on the assignment, but he doesn't feel he has any choice. His country has called on him. So he goes, and things go very badly wrong for him. But his greatest fear is failure. Mm-hmm. He, he knows by having to track this man that he has met somebody who is as good if not better than him and I think that is the thing that really really scares him and then you pile on the fact that he has to do a lot of things which are are very dangerous and that he is so deep undercover that there will be no help for him that nobody will come to rescue him I was rather struck also that the image that came to mind when he sees the members of his own government who have come to retrieve him to go back into active duty is a, a venomous spider. Yes. Yeah. I, was very, I thought that was very interesting. It wasn't the enemy that it takes on the image of a spider. It's essentially his, the people who he's working for. Yes. They, they've come to say to him, uh, there's a plane waiting and we're not telling you where we're going but you are wanted. And he's in New York at the time. And yes, it's clear to him that these are men from the darkness. Mm-hmm. And so is he. And he knows them. And the spider that he draws to mind is, in fact, an Australian spider called the funnel web, the world's most dangerous spider. I hate to say it, but it makes the Black Widow look pretty tame. <laughs> by comparison um, and that so yes he sees this and that was the world he was trying to leave because he knew that or he knows that he is of that world and he knows what it does to a man's soul and here they are standing at the back of a lecture hall waiting for him and he knows they've come for him and they haven't come for him because it's a birthday party, that, that it's the secret world mm-hmm. gathering all its children back again. Yeah. After he's tried to, to leave the secret yes. world, become a civilian. Mm-hmm. That kind of fear brings on another one, the idea of the necessary evil, mm-hmm. which, of course, he's had to be a part of, is the necessary evil in order to avert the apocalypse. Yes. Um, one of the things that I wanted to mention is Echelon. Mm-hmm. Um, Particularly very timely right now with yes. Snowden, Snowden, yeah, and, and wiretapping and, and everybody's sensitivity about that NSA. Echelon, without giving too much away, would probably turn the stomachs of anyone who's fearful of a, a big of, government. A big government. However, the protagonist could not do what he was able to do and save the world without the mm-hmm. aid mm-hmm. of Echelon. Mm-hmm. So, how, how does that? How do you feel about that? particular thing and how do you come about? Well, Echelon is real. Echelon gathers up nearly all of the the electronic communications in the world. In in the post-Second World War era, five of the English-speaking Western nations got together and 
established echelon and at a place called Pine Gap in Australia that nobody's ever heard of but is way over on the western coast of Australia uh, guarded by US Marines no Australian has ever had access to it is one of the echelon listening posts now they are situated all throughout the world so of course you say to yourself like all people well this isn't good they're listening to everything they're sweeping up and we know that the NSA is, is sweeping up every bit of data it can get its hands on. Yes, we say that. But the same people that complain about it, the moment there is a massive attack against the Western world, will be the first people to say, why wasn't it stopped? <laughs> and this is the moral dilemma of the 21st century. Right. I mean, you, you used to, communications were by mail, by snail mail, or by diplomatic pouch. And governments might open diplomatic pouches, or they might read mail. Well, now they have listening posts everywhere in the world and it's like a huge vacuum cleaner. Yes, it's wrong. Of course it's wrong. But is it not more wrong to not stop something that's really... Where do you draw that balance? Where do you find that balance? It's easy in an abstract fashion to say that it should rest here or it should be there. But... You know, if you go back to 9-11, had intelligence services, not just of America, but certain other countries, been paying more attention, or perhaps they'd been listening better, there might be, it might have been a very different outcome to those events. It's very easy to say, well, yes, but personal privacy is paramount. That tends to fall by the wayside when it's one of your family members who is trapped in those towers it, that becomes a whole different issue and in the abstract yes you can formulate an exact moral position it tends to disintegrate in the real world and I don't know how to resolve that and I'm not sure anybody else does either it's not it's difficult. And in terms of the novel, we're talking about an extreme situation, too. Yeah, I mean, I think most stories, whether it's film or novels, uh, or certain types of stories, work best... In extremists. In ex yeah. Yes, in extremists. And that is certainly true of this novel. And Pilgrim does some things which he finds morally repugnant. Mm -hmm. But it is not as morally repugnant as the wholesale annihilation that would ensue if... He fails in this particular mission. So how much evil are you prepared to do in order that a greater good might result? That's the moral question that I think is posed by the book. There is no clear-cut answer to that. Everybody has a slightly different view. And certainly he's fully aware of that dilemma, but he resolves it at least to his own satisfaction, but other people may feel he's a reprehensible character for doing it. Right, and, and there's some clues. As much as he is conscious of he's doing what has to be done, he feels some, I don't want to say regret, but pain at what he's had to do. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's not an inhuman person. He suffered a great deal in his own childhood, and... Mm -hmm. um, he understands the consequences of his actions and he's fully cognizant of the misery that he has caused as a result of certain things that he's done. But on balance, he feels that 
they were things that had to be done. But, you know, I don't like characters who are full of certainty about their own position, who are, who are so absolutely assured in their own minds that what they're doing is correct, that they have no self-doubt. Well, I think that's sort of boring. And that I did notice that the basis for the cliffhangers of your chapters, many, many of them revolve around the pilgrim saying, I should have noticed this. Mm-hmm. Boy, was I wrong. Mm-hmm. In fact, it seems littered with that kind of self-doubt or this reflectivity on his point. Like, wow, why didn't I catch that when I could have? Yeah, be- again, because, look, you know, you talk to anybody who who's performed in any field of life at a reasonably high order. It's never been a, a relentless rise to the top. I mean, Warren Buffett, you know, who is without doubt the, the world's most successful investor, he speaks quite often about the, the bad calls he made, the mistakes mm-hmm. he made. With Pilgrim, he's learned a great deal. He is also telling the story in retrospect. It's not like he's going through it moment by moment and then commenting, saying, well, I, I've made a mistake here. He's looking back and he's trying to work out he's telling us where he went wrong because this is the most challenging mission that he has ever undertaken it wouldn't be very challenging if he got everything right I mean you or I could have done it um, so he he is looking back and he's saying I should have done this and berating himself quite often for the oversights or the things that he missed I think that lends an authenticity to it there's you know, the bookshelves or bookstores of, of the world are full of men, mostly, who have never made a mistake in anything that they've ever done. I find it very difficult to, to believe books like that. Yeah. It lends some credence to his character because in your book, he's an author. He, he wrote mm. a book on investigative uh, technique. technique. Yes. And he describes why he did that. He seems like a very reflective type of character, so it's in keeping that he does this. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he has a rich internal life. Why? Because he was orphaned, because he's been raised as an only child, because he is highly intelligent, and because he has had to confront a great darkness within himself. Uh, I think he says somewhere in the book that everything that was good in him came from his stepfather, and yet the acres of darkness were all his own. He has some self-knowledge. Again, I think that's rare within a fictional covert intelligence agents. Self-awareness is not one of those traits that is often used. I think it makes him a far more interesting man, and I think it also gives a richness to the character, to make him contemplative and to make him have a a certain raised consciousness about himself and his own failings, I think, you know, you have to have a great deal of confidence in order to admit that you don't know things or that you failed in one particular aspect. And that's him. Uh, He knows he's good, but he knows he's not perfect. It wouldn't be a complete story without a really engaging villain mm-hmm. as well, an antagonist as well. You have that in the Saracen. Um, and you mentioned we just you just spoke in front of a group at the bookstore Warwick's. And you mentioned this Western or American view of people in the Middle East or Islam as less cultured, living in caves, mm-hmm. kind of thing, this kind of idea that a lot of people seem to have. 
And you definitely tried to give the Saracen much more of a character, much more of a true personality. And you've talked about this already in the course of this interview, but one thing was really interesting. There is a very suspenseful scene where the Saracen is breaking into a building. That's all I'm going to say. And the way the story is told, the reader forgets that this is the antagonist, Mm -hmm. and and you almost start to root for him. Mm -hmm. What was your intention with that? Um, You know, you're you're a good guy. Your hero can only ever be as good as the villain. Mm -hmm. If you have a really weak villain, you're going to have a really weak hero because there's no challenge. And that... But you also, you, you, you have to take the reader or, or the viewer, if you're doing a film, you have to take them on a journey. And, you know, Georges Santayana, the, the great philosopher, said, I, I think it's a wonderful quote, to understand is to forgive. Mm. And I don't think we could forgive what the Saracen does. But if you can understand what he does, it actually makes him more powerful. You say, this is not a cardboard cut-out character. This isn't a moustache-twirling music hall villain. This is a real man of flesh and blood with real motivations and real intelligence. Be scared. Be very, Mm. very scared. Um, When you devalue your villain, you're actually devaluing the fear that that he can bring to the party, you know? Mm. So it, it, it was a very important thing to go through an emotional experience with him, first as a child, and then in the scene that you mentioned about breaking into a building, and then to see the ingenuity which he uses in order to solve his problem, how do you mount an attack against America, which will be absolutely devastating. I think, because you understand where he came from, what his motivations are, how intelligent he is, and the hurdles he's overcome to do it, it makes him a much more fearsome adversary mm-hmm. for Pilgrim. And Pilgrim admits he is the best that he's ever seen on the battlefield. Yeah, it takes him to his very limits. It, it takes yeah. him to his limits. And, you know, look, I could go and play tennis against Rafael Nadal. Mm-hmm. It won't be much of, a, much of a match, and nobody will remember it because it'll all be over in like four minutes. But when we see Dokovic at the very top of his game playing Nadal, it brings the best out in both of them. That's a match I want to see. And the same in American football, same in basketball, same in soccer, same in novels. You want to see the very best go up against their equal. The ingenuity is really fun to read, and I want to talk about that more, but... It's hard to talk about it without giving it away. <laughs> yes, so, yes. Uh, so I'm just going to tell people, go read it, because some of the stuff in there is really, really interesting, and I, I never would have thought of anything like what they do in a million years. Um, we're going to do one last question. Sure. And then time to wrap it up. But we talked about a theme being fear. Mm-hmm. You have another major theme, which you have described verbatim from a line in the book, which is love is strong. Mm-hmm. All right, so... One could say that the strength of love is a rather cliched theme, but the way you use it in this novel is you you turn it around quite a lot. So was it your intention to play with that cliché? Yeah, yeah, not so much with the cliché, but, but, you know... (laughs) Usually it's a very sentimental... (laughs) Yes, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can slip into into sentiment. When it came time to write the book, I was looking for product difference. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make it a different espionage thriller. And espionage thrillers often deal with sex. Mm -hmm. They don't often deal with love. And obviously, Pilgrim, who is a lone wolf, a man deeply wounded, I didn't want to make it a love story for him. I didn't want this to be the story of a guy who is a you know, a wounded man who goes on this great mission, meets the hot chick and ends up finding love with her. Uh, I mean, this guy's trying to save the Western world from the worst apocalypse that we can imagine. I figured if he hopped into bed with anybody, every reader would say, oh, well, I'm glad you've got your priorities <laughs> right. Oh, I'm glad you know what's important here. That's fine for James Bond. I can't out Fleming Fleming. Right. I wouldn't even try. So I dismissed that idea. I say somewhere in the book that of all the types of love, the most base, the most uplifting, the most extraordinary, and the love that a parent has for a child is the greatest. I think that that is true because of the way both my wife and I feel towards our own children. I found that a very interesting thing to fool around with. I found it very interesting that both Pilgrim and, and, and the villain, Saracen, had been deprived of a parent's love in their childhood. And I thought this was something very unusual, dare I say contemplative, because that tied in with Pilgrim's character. And in all the very, very best espionage thrillers, and I'm not putting my own in that category, uh, that far be it from me to, you know, to make that judgment, history will make that judgment, they tend to turn upon discovering the weakness of your adversary. Mm-hmm. You have to find the thing that they are susceptible to. Again, I don't want to give it away, but... Mm-hmm. That was really at the deepest level, the challenge that Pilgrim undertook. It wasn't just physically finding this man. It was understanding this man. And if he could do that, then it empowered Pilgrim and weakened his adversary. And all of those themes were conscious, and I wanted to deal with things that are of interest to me, but also that were not the usual you know, tropes of yeah. espionage thrillers. You know, I had a vision of, of the type of person that would read the book. And they were not people that were looking for wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, just action sequences or, or mindless violence right. or things like that. The I, level of James Bond's narcissism is off the charts. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and that's fine. It's already been done. Yeah. There's no point in doing something that's already been done and done well. Mm-hmm. You've got to try to find something that you can do that is somewhat different and engaging to a reader. And I thought dealing with what I think is one of the primal emotions of all of us, the quest for love, wherever we might find it, I thought was interesting. And it, it became an overriding theme of, of the book. Everybody good, bad, or indifferent within it, is are people who are looking for or have lost some form of love. And, of course, Pilgrim is, is able eventually to identify this and use it to his advantage. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And it's, uh, it was 
a very engaging novel. Oh, well, we, thank we you. Found, we finished it right away. Well, thank you so, so much. And, yes. and I have to say, thank you so much for all your support. It's a lonely business writing, I can tell you that. But there is nothing that equals the anxiety of having a first novel going on release. So people that that are kind enough and generous enough to, to not only read the book but to say positive things about it always have a special place in your heart and, and you've been absolutely wonderful and I thank you very oh, much well, for that. Mr. Terry Hayes, thank you for having a conversation with me. <laughs> My it's pleasure. It's been quite an experience and great. it was a great job in there. <laughs> <laughs> I try hard. <laughs> So much fun to discuss literature and writing and the process of writing with an author. So many people come on the show to talk about film, and I do say that I like to talk about history, art, literature, film, and beyond, and it feels like literature tends to take a back seat to film just because there are so many filmmakers who are gung-ho about coming on the show and talking about it, which is great. Not only that, but it is more difficult to find new authors and books simply because the task of reading those books is a lot longer of a process than watching a film and deciding to talk about it. So it is more difficult to discuss literature, particularly new literature, than it is to discuss new film. So when I do get the opportunity, I certainly relish it. And this particular conversation was a lot of fun and one I'm going to remember. And I hope I get the chance to speak to other authors about their work. If you're an author writing in a particular genre, since I do cover genre pieces, whether it's suspense or thriller or horror or what have you, then feel free to give me an, an email at miguel at hifilmfest.com. And if you want to send me a book to read, I'll take a look and, and see if uh, we can get you on the show. Also, don't forget, and this goes for anybody, join the conversation on Twitter. My handle is at Monster Resort, or find me on Facebook as usual. So... I think that'll do it for this week, my beloved listeners. Until next time, stay scared. 